You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Gary Niederhoff, and that's my cat. And he's taken up hunting, which is great fun because he brings prizes. And at 4.30 in the morning, he brought in a not-at-all-dead rat, which he chased around the room for a while before I woke up. And thankfully, I found it climbing up a curtain and cornered it and got it out of the house. But now I'm going to be setting some rat traps under the house to see if we can catch any more of these. I definitely want to get rid of them. kind of hate rats because they carry disease. That's the first response many of us have to rats. Repulsion. Just get rid of them. By any means necessary. Okay, so I'm going to go into, I guess what's normally called a crawl space under a house. You can actually kind of walk under ours. I'm going to set these traps It says to set them along walls with the bait end of the trap against the wall because they run along the walls. I'm looking for holes. I think I just found one. So I'm going to put a trap near that. Hold on. Let's not be hasty. After all, the rat is hard to catch because it's smart, like us. And so maybe before we catch a rat and give it the boot. And that makes four. I'm going to turn off the lights and listen for the magic. Let's look past the twitching nose and into its little red eyes and consider that tiny rat brain. I've been working with rats now for about a quarter of a century, and I'm always amazed at what we can learn from them. When you just look at them as a model for an organism or a mammal with a brain, their brains are much smaller, but they have all the same parts that our brains have, all the same neurochemicals. And they're survivors. They've been at this living game for a lot longer than we have. All right. Well, uh, it's been a couple days since I set the traps, so I'm going to go under the house and have a look-see. Nope. Nope. And now on the third one. Huh. The fourth one was triggered, but alas, no rat. Get this one set back up again. (laughs) So for now, anyway, we're thankful that Gary didn't do away with his rats. Gives us a chance to get to know them. They've been our companions in every urban community humans have called home. And, of course, they've been indispensable models in the research lab for understanding who we are. And I am, at least, Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. It's Oh Rats from Big Picture Science. Lab Rat Chronicles is Kelly Lambert's celebration of the mammals that she works with in her lab as a behavioral neuroscientist because she does more than study their vital signs. She admires these rodents for having done very well on this planet, thank you very much, for a long time. In other words, respect your elders. They've been around for about 65 million years You know, our most recent ancestors were looking at about a couple hundred thousand. So we can use that as a model to learn some of the kind of nature secrets, some of um, the basic elements of being a mammal and surviving, and even that includes being human. I like the case that you make in your book about why rats are better at humans at providing answers about human behavior because humans can't be relied on to report accurately. How so? Well, you know, there, there's some interesting research that's done by a fellow by na- the name of uh, John DeCastro when he was at Georgia State University. And he asked college students a very basic question. We eat all the time, right? We eat three meals, and we should notice things about what we eat. But if you asked humans, do you eat more when you're alone or when you're in groups? 
a lot of us would say, oh, we're kind of conscientious when we're in groups. We eat more when we're alone. But if we're in a large group, eight or so people, we can eat up to 75% more food, and we don't even know it. So if somebody asked us and we were doing a self-report kind of survey, we wouldn't get that right. So we can't always depend on our thoughts and observations of our own selves. Also, with the laboratory rat, we have a lot of control. I know what they've been fed for their entire lives. I know a lot about their genetics. I know what they've been exposed to. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on what rats and humans have in common, because you could say, if you use the genetic example, mm-hmm. you could say we share 75% of our genes with pumpkins, I believe. Right. But I don't think anyone <laughs> would study a pumpkin to understand uh, human behavior. But it sounds like there are many ways in which the rat behavior and the rat brain and biology is very similar to humans. And you touched on some of that, but I wonder if you could just expand on that a bit. Right. So it, it's we share more genetic material than the pumpkin, about 90% with the rats. But also, they're mammals, and we're a mammal. And we may not learn about religion or politics or war or something like that from rats, but we do learn a lot about our everyday behavior that we engage in more than those types of endeavors. Eating, social interaction, being a parent, romance, love, grooming. We spend a lot of time doing that. We can learn from rats. So those behaviors, those day-to-day behaviors, how we respond to a stressful situation, how we cope most effectively, we can learn all of that from a rat. And rats and um, mice are used in in something like 85% of Mm -hmm. biomedical research. And while mice are used in experiments as well, uh, rats seem to be more like this because they're more complex, believe it or not. You write that the mouse has chosen simplicity as a a survival trait, but the rat has chosen complexity. In what ways is a rat's (laughs) life or behavior complex? Because it looks pretty basic to me. They just run back and forth. I have to really defend these guys. (laughs) Yeah, you do. Uh, I never cease to be amazed in the laboratory by how complex these, these animals are with their behavior. But when you think about in the wild, which is going to require even more resourcefulness from these animals, you know, they don't have any type of health plan, insurance, the assurance that, you know, you just pick up the phone to get your food. Every day, every minute, they're accountable for their survival. So that's going to require a lot of real-time, problem-solving types of interactions with the environment. And one thing we're learning in some of the research that I'm conducting at Randolph-Macon is flexibility is incredibly important. And we share this with the rats. We're more generalists. We haven't specialized in eating one type of food or engaging in one way of gaining resources just like the rats. They like all the food we do. And, and that's one reason they've survived so well, because they've piggybacked with us and the commensal uh, species in that way. But they are very complex. They don't respond in a single way all the time. When you change the environment, you change the circumstances, they change the responses. So mice are great subjects as well. And I have mice in my lab, and I love working with them. But when I want to look at problem solving or more complex tasks, there's no question about it, I'm going to the rat. And they're just very adaptive animals. But couldn't Um, you say that about the cockroach or the worm? I mean, there are a lot of animals that have been around for a long time. Alligators are a good example because they go back almost to the dinosaur era. Are rats any more resourceful? Yeah, I mean, going back to your point about the cockroach, certainly there are other species that have been wonderful survivors and been around more than, than humans. But we are talking about mammals. Well, it depends on what your markers are for success. And one reason in in the book why I argued that this is a model of success, about 40% of all mammalian species are rodents. So they're making up a good chunk of the mammalian species. And rats, you've got about 55 different species. We have one human species. So when you look at kind of divergence and how much, you know, the percentage-wise they're taking up of this mammalian category, they're doing great. There's also a stigma, of course, attached to rats, which is mm-hmm. plague, which is fleas and the plague. And that has really colored the history of the rat and how people react to rats when they hear about these little, well, large rodents. Right. I guess we could more accurately, you know, blame the, the flea or whatever that was related to that. But right, we, we do have this association with rats. And also, we think of them as being very dirty, filthy, germ-laden animals So they're easy to not like. Also, their tails, when you think of conditioned responses and fears in humans, and I know a lot of people don't like a a rat because their tail kind of almost looks like a snake or something like that. 
So there are lots of reasons why people are fearful of rats. And I think a big one is they seem to bring germs into the house and eat garbage. So that kind of makes them dirty. But they do spend a lot of their time grooming. And that's a very important behavior. And if that's disrupted, one of the ways we look at stress and dysfunctional coping is that their grooming pattern, which is this wonderfully complex choreography kind of responses where they start in these little circles on their nose and then they go you know, wider in circles around their face and their ears and then they go back to their back and tail. A very systematic response that's incredibly important to them. So they spend a lot of time grooming. They need to keep clean to be alive. They need to keep that fur looking good. Well, the controversy around rats and other animals continues um, just as subjects in the laboratory. And how do you respond to animal activists who would like all research on animals, on laboratory animals, to cease? That's a great question, and it's something that I struggle with all the time because I'm a huge animal lover. I was the kid who was always bringing something home. And I think in order to value non-human animal research, you do need to make a distinction between human survival and life and non-human animal life which I do, and to use these animals in very responsible ways. And it's important that we do that, that our labs, that we have the best conditions for these animals, because if nothing else, it gives us the best and most accurate and informed data. But to use these animals in that way to learn more or to get closer for a cure for cancer. You know, my mom passed away when she had cancer. You know, I could really appreciate it's going to take this research and these living animals A lot of research challenges that we have now, biomedical challenges, we probably aren't going to solve with just cells in a Petri dish. Anything that involves behavior and intact whole living organisms, we're probably going to need a mammal. There are a lot of regulations in the lab. I I have more regulations for keeping a rat in a lab than our college has for keeping students in dorms. That's absolutely the truth, the air exchange and food. So we do take care of them. Scientists are bound to this cost-benefit analysis. If there's not a reason, if there's not a potential benefit, if there's any way to minimize the threat or cost to the animal, we're accountable for that. But we always need to be mindful of this and never take it for granted. Kelly Lambert is a behavioral neuroscientist, and we'll hear more from her later in the show. But it's dinner time. Come on. What are you doing? Just giving her a banana. Can I feed one? Yeah, sure. Okay, so take this banana. Now, this is just a slice of a banana. Where do I put it? Um, You just put it through the little cage bars, and she'll turn around, probably. Ah, she took it. Oh, and she's holding it in her hand. That's cute. This California family has not one, but five rats as pets. My name is AJ, and I'm 13 years old. Looks like we have a a runaway rat. It's fine. Just let him roam. I'm Julie, and I'm 11. You have a rat next to you. Yeah, this is Roxy. We have Roxy and Paula, and they're rats that we've had for about a year and a half. And then in the cage over here, we have three rats, Carlota, Callie, and Crooks. I'm Jill. I'm the mom of AJ and Julie. Now, AJ and Julie, do these rats have personalities? Definitely. I think Roxy is a bit like a sewer rat. Is this Roxy here? Yes. She's super nice and, like, adventurous. And how do you like having rats as pets? Um, They're great. They're super smart and very friendly, unlike mice. Mice are just kind of in their own world. Mm. They don't really have personalities. Okay, so this is Paula. So Paula's in my hand right now, and she's kind of ticklish. She's warm. She's super soft, has this long tail, and really, is really sweet. Now, did you have to train the rats so that they were, I don't know, friendly to humans? It didn't really feel like training. It was just, like, socializing them and holding them and playing with them. And then that, over time, just made them be super social. Hey, stop chewing on my bracelet. That just, over time, made them be super nice and super social. They definitely know who we are, and they know new people, and they're not as comfortable with new people. If you were to come over to our house a lot and hang out, they'd come to know you, and then they would accept you as someone that they'll hang out with (laughs) and on. So I have an idea of what you think about the rats, and do you have any idea what they think about you? I think they think... We're like big friendly monsters, but I also think that they think we're part of the family. She's fine, she's fine. I've learned that rats are super smart. They're too smart for some of the stuff that you think like will entertain them. Do they they teach you anything about being a human? To be content, but still 
to explore things. They just made me more like loving, and I definitely feel attached to these these rats, and I love them. And they also do such cool climbing moves. If I could only do rat climbing moves, I'd be pretty happy. <laughs> so pet rats sound pretty attractive and a lot more interesting than fish, by the way. Coming up, laboratory rats help us understand cancer and human behavior. You're listening to Big Picture Science. Oh, rats. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Big Picture Science as we investigate the legacy of the rat, the subject of much derision. The rat is, as we've heard, one of our best models of evolutionary adaptation and survival, and that's why it's a laboratory favorite. Kelly Lambert reminds us that the ubiquitous albino lab rat is a breed apart from its immigrant cousins. When I was looking back and researching about how rats immigrated to the United States, it was really interesting. We had about there are really two crops of rats, one that came over with us on the boats and ships, and they hid and they ate the food that we ate, and then they escaped into the cities. And there were also, in Europe, before they came over even, they would have these pits where they would have dogs, terriers, chase rats. So it wasn't a very kind world for rats, and they started breeding them. And part of that, and we did this in the United States as well, that was kind of a, a pastime in pubs or something like that to see how, that's very cruel to see how many rats a terrier could kill and they would take bets on that. But part of the breeding that came out of that industry, breeding of rats in Europe, every once in a while it would produce this white rat. And although the standard rats were not valued very much other than this form of entertainment, the white rats seemed almost magical or mystical, and so they would save those and give them to even royalty as if, you know, some special species. And a few people brought those white rats over to the United States, and that was the beginning of the laboratory rat, which is a different career rat than the standard wild rat that's running around in the back alleys. So they came over with us, and they came over to be laboratory rats, and they've been great in that career. Scientists recognized that the albino rat had promise as a model in the lab. The animals were robust. You could keep them in small enclosures. They didn't need a lot of variety in their food, and they were easy to breed. So they started cataloging everything about this furry white creature, how big it was, how much it weighed, and what it ate, and eventually its genes. Sequencing of the rat genome was completed in 2004. But before that landmark achievement... Scientists use what they already knew about individual rat genes to advance their medical research. I'm Michael Gould. I'm professor of oncology and medical physics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Michael Gould's work is breast cancer research, which he says is dependent on the laboratory rat. When it comes to susceptibility to disease, the rat has more commonalities with humans than that other lab rodent, the mouse. And while most rats won't tell you, the albino rat has contributed greatly to medical research as a model for studying disease. In 2003, after 10 years of failed attempts, Michael Gould's team created an important new genomic tool. His knockout rat became a way to study breast cancer suppressor genes BRCA1 and BRCA2. The knockout rat is so named because it was produced by knocking out one of its genes. So to knock out a gene really means to inactivate the gene. So the uh, gene makes proteins, and the proteins have function. And if some way you modify the DNA, and that's what knocking out has to do, uh, it no longer makes the functional protein or makes no protein at all. Knocking out a gene has been done in other animals, but up until about a decade ago, it was found very difficult to do that in rats, and yet you were able to do that. What was it about the rat that made this particularly tricky? Well, it turns out that making knockouts are tricky in general, and it turns out that the first technologies, which was discovered at the University of Wisconsin, was the ability to knock out uh, genes in mice, 
And this was in some ways fortuitous. It turns out that there are only a few strains of mouse where you could really knock out genes, and other mice as well as rats and other species were difficult to do this in. So with the advancement of science, we made great progress, and now we're able to knock out genes in almost any species. Back about 10 years ago, we tried a trick to knock out genes in rats, and we actually did it by mutating the genes with a chemical and then selecting for the mutants. Do you have to have the genome decoded to be able to do that? Do you have to have the full genome in front of you and then you select out what genes to knock out? Well, it's not impossible to knock out genes when you don't have the whole genome. If you have a gene that you know the sequence of, you can probably knock it out using this method. But it's an advantage and make it made it easier when they sequenced the whole rat genome and we had the sequences for the genes we were interested in. The first two genes we knocked out were breast cancer-related genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2. And we were helped greatly by having the sequence for these genes. So basically what we did was we mutagenized the entire genome and then used a assay to ask the question whether specific rats had BRCA1 or 2 knocked out. And when we found they were, then we took that rat and bred it, and we had an inbred strain with either of these two genes knocked out. What does that mean to mutate a gene or a sequence? So generally, uh, there are a lot of chemicals, both in our natural environment and also synthetic, that if our DNA is exposed to, it alters the DNA and damages it. And we exposed the rat to an agent, an alkylating agent, uh, which is also found in hot dogs and other uh, sausages. But we gave it a concentrated dose, and this caused the DNA to mutate, which means it changed its normal composition. Does that mean if I eat hot dogs or some other kind of sausage, I'm doing some damage to my DNA? The answer is probably yes. Okay, that's good. To, that's good to know. I'll have to make a note on my on my diet. Okay, so now you've knocked out some of these genes in the rat, and these are genes that, in the pace of biomedical research, have been long known to be associated with breast cancer. Now, why is it useful for you to remove those genes from the rat? What might it tell you about breast cancer? Well, when we uh, remove genes from the rat that are similar to genes that are naturally found removed in humans, that gives us a disease model. But how do you do that? You've knocked out the gene. These animals no longer have that gene, so they're not diseased. How, how is it that you test the model of the disease? So in general, when a woman develops a breast cancer because she has, for example, BRCA1, Generally, uh, she has one normal copy of BRCA1 and one mutated copy that she inherits. And what happens is the other gene gets mutated from environmental or non-environmental causes. And now you have a cell in the breast that has both copies of BRCA1 mutated. And that cell has a high propensity to uh, progress to form cancer. So the question is, can we do the same in rodent models? I'm still confused about the connection between knocking out, getting rid of the gene, and then seeing what happens when the gene is activated inside the rodent. So if you knock out a gene in general, uh, the animal no longer has the gene. So women who have are carriers for BRCA1 have one copy of BRCA1 that works and one copy that doesn't work. When the woman develops cancer, the breast cell loses the remaining good copy. So in fact, the woman has both copies of BRCA1 knocked out in the breast cell that will go on to form a cancer. So if we take a rodent model and we knock out BRCA1, this mimics the situation that a woman finds herself when her cell is about to go on to cancer. So by knocking this out in a rodent model, we can study the biology, the consequences that the cell sees, both in rodents and modeling, the loss of the gene, not the gain of function, but the loss of function in humans that causes the breast cancer. So in some ways, the gene is being knocked out naturally in women who go on to develop this disease. And what you're doing is providing an artificial knockout in the rat that, that will mimic the conditions of a woman who may go on to get breast cancer. That's correct. So the idea is that you've created a tool. By learning how to knock out this gene in rats, you've created a very useful tool that you can use, apply to all sorts of diseases that you'd like to study. And that's correct, and that was 10 years ago. Over the last 10 years, these methods that we developed 10 years ago have been antiquated uh, as science progresses on, and now we have newer and newer methods. In fact, over the last year or two, some brand new methods have come out to allow us to knock out genes in any species we care to, uh, right from rats to uh, pigs to cows. Do you handle the rats yourself? No, I'm allergic to them. I used to handle them when I was younger. 
Are you really? You're allergic to rats. What happens if you get close to a rat? I uh, sort of wheeze a little bit, and if the tail rubs across my arm, I get well, so I've generally become allergic to rats over the years. This has happened over time, or you were always allergic to rats? Oh, when I was a graduate student, I used to use a lot of rats. I handled them myself. I developed an allergy over time. This you happens to a lot of people, and now we have better ways of safeguarding people who work with rodents so they don't develop these allergies. Do you think it goes the other way, too, where the rats get become allergic to humans? I would think so. <laughs> In fact, humans are lethal to rats. Okay, Michael Gould, thank you so much for speaking with us. And thank you. It's been fun having you over here. Michael Gould is professor of oncology and medical physics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Laugh, and the world of rats laughs with you. Yes, rats—I <laughs> can't say this without laughing—rats actually laugh. Well, this revelation is just one of many all too disturbingly similar to human traits that these rodents have, making the laboratory rat an excellent tool for studying behavior and not just disease. Yak Panksep is a neuroscientist who studies the neural basis of emotion. His latest book— the Archaeology of Mind, Neuroevolutionary Origins of Human Emotions, which sounds impressive, but what made Yak Panksep something of a scientific celebrity a couple years back is when he discovered that rats laugh. But it gets better how you get them to laugh. Yak, how do you get a rat to laugh? I mean, that <laughs> sounds like the opening line of a joke. Pretty easy. You just tickle a rat. Of course, you have to have a relationship with the animal. Otherwise, the animal will not want to be tickled, and they have to be a little lonely for companionship. So, oh, wait. I don't want to be personal here, but where do you tickle a rat? Oh, tickling a rat is just pretty much the same as tickling a little child. It's all over the body. It's sort of like, you know, playing any of the childhood games that are physical. And uh, your hand goes all over the rat. And it's basically a hand that's playing with a rat. <laughs> do, they, do they laugh audibly? I mean, can you hear it? Not with our auditory system uh, because they communicate in the ultrasound range. This little chirpy laughter, if you bring it down to our range, is something that they do in their normal social interaction. Okay, so this is above 20 kilohertz. I would think that maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe dogs can hear rats laugh. I, I don't know if they're sensitive to that, but they, they might well, be Well, certainly to... bats would. Bats, okay. <laughs> well, bats and rats can, can laugh together. Okay, but the fact that they're laughing, I mean, maybe that's just some sort of automatic reaction, like, you know, you, you've hit me below the knee and my leg jumps or something like that. I mean, does this mean that they're actually experience mirth, the emotion of mirth? Well, you know, all the good things in life are built into the brain. The brain has to know how to experience it. So they're automatic processes we call emotions and feelings. And this one, whenever we uh, tickle the animals, the animals learn where to get more tickles. So it's not like a knee jerk. I don't know what the difference is between an automatic reaction and one that they've learned. Maybe you can explain that to me. Well, uh, you're born with a lot of tools for living. So no child is ever taught how to laugh. They laugh spontaneously. They cry spontaneously under certain circumstances. So do the other animals. And this automaticity is built into the nervous system. It, is it in one part of the brain? Can you know you draw with a magic marker or some you know on the rat's head and say right underneath that that's the laugh part of the rat's brain. Well, it's a very large system, but it's all very deep and ancient in the brain. So we've known from human neurological studies that human laughter circuitry is also very deep. It's not in the neocortex, the part that understands jokes. So it's the same in the rat. It looks like the same system in humans and rats. I see. And can this be separated from other emotions? Because as humans, of course, we laugh in all sorts of situations, which might not be comedic, mm -hmm. right? Torturers laugh sadistically as they're bringing the axe up to take off your head or whatever. Horrible <laughs> stuff. <laughs> well, well, do rats laugh in other situations than being tickled? Well, there is a dark side to laughter that Thomas Hobbes, the philosopher, talked about, but we have never seen this kind of laughter in rats. I think this requires a special complex brain like humans that can take pleasure in other people's distress. 
that doesn't seem to happen in the quote lower animals. I see. Uh, there maybe maybe malevolence isn't something they know about. Yeah, maybe chimps have it. Who knows? <laughs> well, you your research has identified a number of uh, discrete emotions that we experience. Maybe maybe you could quickly list those for us. Well, it's it's a seven item list basically, and these are behavioral expressions of emotions you can activate by tickling certain parts of the brain. And the most ancient and biggest one we call a seeking system, which is the system for desire, desire for everything. It doesn't know what it desires initially. It has to learn. But, of course, other animals desire similar things, so you're going to get into a fight with someone, so there is a rage system. And some animals want you as food, so you better have a fear system in order to survive. If you're a mammal or like any animal, you have a sexual urge. So there are lust systems slightly different in males and females. Of course, if you have a reproductive system, then you also have to take care of the baby if you're a mammal. So there's a maternal care system, and we capitalize these. And uh, little babies have to desperately demonstrate their need for mother if they get lost, so they have a crying system. We call this the panic system. We think panic attacks emerge from this emotional system. And finally, the most wonderful one that we studied most recently was play. Because as a mammal, you don't have all the skills for living. You have to learn most of them. And play is a wonderful way to learn the ways of the social life. Well, let me recapitulate there. We have seeking, rage, fear, lust, care, panic or grief, and play. Now, you, you find these in rats. Obviously, you find them in humans, but you also find them in rats. I think you will find them in every animal. Well, not every animal, every mammal. Every mammal. So clearly, this has survival value because mammals have been around for a while. Absolutely. And these are tools for living, just like your legs and arms. Uh, okay. But now, but... You know, noticing that a rat laughs or that it obviously they, they have fear. I didn't know about rage, but, you know, lust. I, I, it's hard for me to judge whether, whether that rat's looking kind of lustfully. Uh, but, you know, hearing that it has that, that doesn't surprise me. They but, chirp a lot when they're in lust. Really? I wonder if humans do that. Okay. They laugh a lot when they're courting. <laughs> well, humans do do that. Okay. <laughs> Maybe all the, the chirping is done at 50 kilohertz where we can't hear it. Uh, but... You know, there's this tendency, you see it with people and their pets, to sort of anthropomorphize the emotions that they think their animals are experiencing. Is that, you know, scientifically justified? Can we say that a, a rat is feeling lust sort of consciously or some level of consciousness or fear or rage? Well, uh, if you only had behavior to look at, you would have endless controversy. And that's why it became a sin to anthropomorphize in science. But we can now study emotional feelings in animals because it turns out that wherever you use deep brain stimulation to activate an emotional response, those areas are always rewarding and punishing. And humans do not have rewards and punishments they can't feel. So we should not give a special status to human beings if there are rewarding and punishing systems, emotional systems in the brain, the animal has a feeling. It doesn't mean it's identical to ours, but it's in the same category because it's the same anatomies and the same chemistries. Can you actually describe what emotion is, what's going on in the brain that causes emotions? Is, you know, is there Absolutely. some mechanistic description? Absolutely. You know, if you do deep brain stimulation, uh, that's electrical current pretty much out of the wall, shaped a little bit. That's garbage into the brain biocomputer. But you stimulate the right areas and a coherence emerges. Seeking behavior, rage behavior, fear, lust, maternal care, so, separation, distress, and play. So those are built into the system by definition. It's garbage in, coherence out. You can't do that to your computer. I have to ask this. Are, are, are the rats you're studying, do you have the feeling that they have self-awareness, that they're conscious of their own existence? Well, that's a very high-level kind of consciousness. We're talking about affective, feeling type of consciousness that some people have put into the unconscious. The higher levels of awareness, not just experience, but knowing that you're experienced, the word is awareness, those allow us ideas and complex memories, and we cannot go the 
they're in animals, yeah. We know they're more complex than we have assumed, but we can't say that they experience their thoughts the way we do. Well, finally, Yak, are, are these rats your friends? I mean, do they know who you are? You recognize that you have well, a relationship with these guys, but do they recognize that they have one with you? Absolutely. We've done that experiment. So we have two people. One person pets the rat, and the other person tickles the rat just the same amount of time. And guess who they choose to be with? The hand that tickles them. They do recognize us. We have smells. They're so much better at smells than we are. So there's no question there is individual identification in rats. Yak Panksep, thanks so much for talking with me. My pleasure. And by the way, rats don't need humans to tickle them. Rats tickle each other. They, they tumble, they engage in roughhouse play, which produces a tickling effect, says Yak Panksep, and lots of chirping. Yak Panksep is a neuroscientist at Veterinary College, Washington State University, and he's the author most recently of The Archaeology of Mind, Neuroevolutionary Origins of Human Emotions. And we look forward to his book in progress, Rat Jokes. What has been up to this point one of the world's thinnest books, The Rat Book of Humor. Coming up, slow down, you move too fast. Why rats aren't stressed by the rat race, but we are. It's Oh Rats from Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Oh, Rats. That's right. No, rats. I forgot my coffee in the other room. You know, Molly, think about that phrase. You just said, oh, rats. I mean, it's a common enough expression. (laughs) Maybe for my grandmother, my grandmother's grandparents. Yeah, well, at least it was something you could say around kids. <laughs> it's sort of old-fashioned. But it doesn't seem to suggest anything pleasant. I mean, No, no. I think if you say, oh, rats, it's usually a sign of bad luck. Like, you don't say, oh, rats, I just want a new car. Yeah, but, you know, maybe you should. I mean, why do rats have to be such objects of bad luck and derision? After all, rats have infiltrated our language in a way that few animals have. You never hear a negative allusion to a polar bear like, you dirty polar bear. We're pretty sympathetic to our mammalian brethren, with the exception of rats. Consider, does your hair look ratty or maybe your furniture? Not nice. Or what about the fact that your office resembles a rat's nest? What's with that? A nest is a comforting, safe place where you can be buffered against danger. But because of that word rat, well, no one would consider rat's nest to be a compliment. It's just ratophobia, it seems. Being called a dirty rat is not something you'd thank anyone for, even though in the rodent world it might refer to a hardworking individual. Oh, and by the way, Jimmy Cagney never said, you dirty rat. When Charlie Brown was frustrated in his efforts to achieve even a small success, he would just stand by resignedly and say rats. Yep, when the world went pear-shaped, Charlie invoked the rodents. Are you a pack rat? Not necessarily a compliment. And even the jaunty term rat patrol has a certain menace to it. Well, rather than considering them our nemeses, maybe we should just go out and shake some rat's paws. They've been awfully good to us mostly, even though we don't seem to give a rat's posterior for them. Well, there's another concept that rats have helped us to understand, or at least have lent their name to, when we bring our heart rates down enough to pay attention, that is. 
You punch it at 8.30 every morning, except you punch it at 7.30 following a business holiday. Thus, it's a Monday, then you punch it at 8 o'clock. Punch in late, and they dock you. Take this off the secretarial pool on three. ASAP. Letter size of green voucher. Folder size of yellow When we think about stress and our stress response, we probably learned more from the rats than any other source about stress. And in fact, Hans Selye, the Canadian researcher, he coined the term stress after observing rats who were not responding very well to certain circumstances. And he noticed, you know, things were happening. They had stress ulcers and swollen up adrenal glands and certain hormones, stress hormones. And he, he borrowed this term kind of from the engineering field, stress, in the sense that, you know, if you wear down a material, it will just break at some point, you know, to find out what the breaking point is. So that research, you know, he did a lot of that in the 1950s. So this term that we use every day has not been around for that long. It's incredible because mm-hmm. stress is so interwoven now right, with our right, lives. We right. think of everything almost in terms of how much stress does it mm-hmm. provide or I'm take away. Yeah. Since we're talking about stress, how about the term rat race? Have you given much thought to that? I, mean, I can talk about I mean, I write about rat race, and we have this idea that we're in this running wheel kind of going nowhere, and, and rats certainly do that, and that doesn't seem like a very adaptive behavior to get into a running wheel and not go anywhere. But also write about how meaningfulness of behavior is important, and it concerns me when I think about our culture and our lifestyle where we don't do a lot of physical things to get our resources. We press buttons and we sit in front of computer monitors and we don't cook our food or, or build our shelters or make our clothes or do anything physical, a lot of us, our brains might be losing that relationship or that association between our efforts and meaningful outcomes. And I think that's different from just spiraling out of control in this rat race. It's interesting because I, I didn't realize that the rat race meant specifically that idea of running on the treadmill and feeling like you're not getting anywhere because I think of it too. And maybe I think there are this, different perceptions of it. Well, yeah, yeah just uh-huh. the onslaught of stimuli in our lives now. Um, and maybe hmm. rats have something to say about that, but computers <laughs> and texting and it seems like we always have to respond and a minute doesn't go by where we're getting pinged or beeped at mm-hmm. somewhere. Is that also thought of as a rat race? I wonder if what rats have to say yes, about being overstimulated. I, I think they would say that's the human race. Mm. <laughs> I think that we're, we're doing that. And no other species is really replacing all these meaningful behaviors that we evolved to do with more artificial ways of gaining our resources. I see that being more aligned with humans than rats. Okay, so the rats are smarter than we are. Sure, some live in cages, but we're hemmed in ourselves, prisoners of the technology we've created in its incessant bells, beeps, and buzzes, a kind of feeding frenzy for our attention. This noisy, busy modern world, a variation of the rat race, was explored recently in writer Pico Iyer's article for the New York Times, The Joy of Quiet. And I often feel uh, that in the modern world, we find ourselves suddenly in this roller coaster, careening up and down. We never necessarily wanted to get onto it in the first place. We don't know how to get off it. And so we have to commit ourselves to this ever more post-human acceleration. It's interesting. You use the phrase the post-human existence, but everything you've described is very human. Our technology, our noise, our civilization. What is post-human about it? The speed. (laughs) I think sometime around the end of the last century, our hunger for speed got so great that we were actually constantly breathless. And the more time-saving devices we had, the less time we seemed to have. We were always racing to keep up, even though all these wonderful machines, as you were saying, were about liberating us and about shortening the amount of time we used for anything. And I think there's an interesting relationship between technology and speed, because technology implicitly makes us hunger for speed, and speed makes us hunger for the latest, quickest technologies. And before we know it, we're moving at the pace that I don't think humans were ever meant to move at. And certainly that no human has moved at before. So my image of the modern moment is almost that of people, of teenagers, joyriding in a Porsche at 160 miles an hour around blind curves. And that's, of course, the excitement of it. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what will come next. But it's also the terror of it. And in your article, The Joy of Quiet, you write about this need for stillness. And you write, and in fact, I'm just going to have you read your own writing. Ah, okay. In barely one generation, we've moved from exulting in the time-saving devices that have so expanded our lives to trying to get away from them. 
often in order to make more time. The more ways we have to connect, the more many of us seem desperate to unplug. What are we trying to unplug? What are these devices? They're the tools uh, of, that have made us their servants. <laughs> we began controlling them and suddenly we find that we're hostage to them. So cell phone, email, TV. And what often strikes me is that as soon as a new thing comes into our lives, we understandably exult at all the new things it allows us to do. And it only takes a little while for us to begin to notice all that it hasn't changed and all that it doesn't allow us to do. And I notice that with, for example, cars and television both of which so expanded and liberated our lives. But now I know many friends who try to avoid the car and they associate, associate it with pollution and traffic jams. And many friends who try to minimize their use of television uh, because they feel it makes them passive or it's actually removing them from real life rather than bringing them into it as it, perhaps it once did in the 1950s. So I think with our latest toys, we're still in the honeymoon period but we're just about to emerge into the sense of coming into a long-term relationship and realizing that they do inevitably bring shadows uh, with them. I was reading recently about a teenager in Sacramento who sent and received 300,000 text messages in a month, which means 10,000 a day, which means if she's awake 16 hours, and I'm really hoping she gets eight hours of sleep every night, she, every minute of every waking hour for a whole month was sending or receiving 10 text messages. It sounds like what you're advocating, if you are advocating anything, is making smart compromises with technology, not just saying no to all of it, although there are probably times that you would like to do that, and people have done that, but saying yes, being particular in what we say yes to, and not necessarily every new gadget, every new model, every new version of a communication device that comes our way. Wonderfully said. I think what we really need is balance. So I'm very clumsy with technology, but just as you say, I'm not against technology, and I don't think we should go backwards, and I don't think once we've invented something, we can uninvent it. And I couldn't live the way I do currently without technology. I couldn't live in Japan and send my articles to my bosses in New York by email without, or previously fax machine without technology, and I couldn't live in Japan and visit my 80-year-old mother in California easily without technology. So exactly, I, I'm so grateful that technology literally has made our lives longer healthier, brighter, and better. But because of all that, we forget that it's also making them sometimes more frazzled, more complicated, more fractious. And I think the paradox at the heart of this is twofold. First, that the information revolution came without a manual, that it suddenly placed the Library of Alexandria in our living rooms, but it didn't tell us how to make the best use of it. And secondly, that it's really only by going offline that you can begin to do justice to the online world. It's only by logging out and walking away from the machine that you can find the emotional clarity and the sense of priorities and arguably the wisdom to really make the most of those machines. Otherwise, we're just like Mickey Mouse in Fantasia or something like that, on a kind of mass production line, running to keep up and excited about the process of our running, but not necessarily going anywhere except in circles. Pico Iyer is a writer, and his article, The Joy of Quiet, appeared in the New York Times. Hey, would somebody give that rodent wheel some oil, please? Okay, so rats have pulled ahead of the pack, so it seems. We've learned a lot from them, but they're really smarter than us in some ways. They don't manufacture stress like we do. They're realists who live in the moment. They laugh when they have fun, but they never do it at the expense of other rats. Right. There's something to be learned from rats, and not just those who live in our labs. Maybe being a dirty rat would be a step up for us. Molly turned to behavioral neuroscientist Kelly Lambert for some final thoughts. Well, finally, we've been talking about the laboratory rat, but there is another kind of rat, which is the wild rat. And how is it that the wild rat can help us get in touch with our ancient, authentic animal selves? <laughs> right. I'm very intrigued by those wild rats, and you have to be a really smart hunter <laughs> to be able to trap a wild rat, and we see pest control people who, who have a hard time with this. I went to Johns Hopkins, and then there was a, a researcher there who studies rats in the back alleys of Baltimore, and I was so excited to be able to go on that trip, and they're just wonderful, resourceful animals. But there's a lot to learn there. When they bring those wild rats into the laboratory, 
one of my former students who's a professor there now, Sabra Klein, she was looking at some of those areas of the body that respond to stress, like the adrenal glands that pump out stress hormones. And her students had been working with the wild rats, and it was very easy to see that adrenal gland and the spleen, some of those that's related to the immune system. When she had them do this with laboratory rats, they said, Dr. Klein, they, they don't have an adrenal gland. The difference between the size of those body organs between the wild rat and the laboratory rat was huge. The spleen, the adrenal gland was about 10 times larger in these wild rats, which reminds us how tough it is to live out there in the wild and how you know they have to have more readily available resources and be more responsive. Also, I always worry that although we are learning a lot from the laboratory rats, that they're so domesticated that it may not be the real deal. And there was some work at Oxford, which was just fascinating, in which this researcher took a group of laboratory rats and took them out to a farm around Oxford and let them go and then did this beautiful documentary. And we may think, oh, you know, what are they going to do? The first time a cat comes by, they just don't know how to act. But it seemed like the minute they hit the ground, they became feral. A cat walked by the first evening. They'd never seen a cat or smelled a cat. And they were in a farm situation, so they escaped. They ran into the barn and and hid in the hay for about 24 hours until the threat was gone. And then they were very careful about and very vigilant about surveying very quickly so they wouldn't be susceptible to prey. And they'd grown up in a laboratory. I don't think I could adapt that well, what the rats did. It makes me hopeful that we still have those, you know, we can tap into those resources if we need to, if we're losing some of that through all of our domestication and advanced technology. So the rats are telling us that we still might have those ancestors inside of us, and they're truly related to survival. So maybe if you get stuck in a problem, you have to think, what would a rat do? I do. I do. (laughs) Kelly Lambert, thank you so much for speaking with us. Nice speaking with you. Thanks for being interested in rats. (laughs) Kelly Lambert is a behavioral neuroscientist at Randolph-Macon College, Ashland, Virginia, and author of Lab Rat Chronicles, a neuroscientist reveals life lessons from the planet's most successful mammals. And I would say my thoughts about these rodents has been very positively changed. Oh, I would say the same with me. When I met those rats over at uh, A.J., Julie, and Jill's house, um, and they crawled on me and they were really sweet, I was one over. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks to our radical production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Oh Rats. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? Look for us at Big Picture Science. You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because, well, you don't have to click a mouse, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. Just in passing, I never said, "Mm, you dirty rat. Come out and take it, you dirty yellow-bellied rat, or I'll give it to you through the door.